Welcome to Blackout at Sunrise. Today's guest is Mr. Ryan Patterson. Ryan is a musician, vocalist, graphic designer and visual artist based in Louisville, Kentucky. Ryan's bands include Black Cross, Black God, Phipps Chains and most notably Coliseum. Coliseum's latest album, Anxiety's Kiss, was released on Death Wish Records in 2015. Ryan also runs and owns Shirtkiller.com, which provides exclusive merch for some of the best bands on earth. Okay, cool. I've had a fucking day. I, I, for some reason, I just couldn't get this shit to work earlier. And sorry for, sorry for fucking you around a little bit, but we got the yeah, dog no finally. Worries. How are you, okay. man? I'm good. I'm well. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, just want to start with um, maybe Coliseum first. I know you probably talk about it a lot, but and you probably answer the same questions a lot. But you know, I'm just got, if if you get tired of my questions, you can just tell me to fuck off. But uh, so you're is this is this your twelfth year as a band now? Um, yeah, uh, the band had its first practice in November of 2003. So, and I put our first show in March 2004. Yeah. Five full-length albums, is it, under your belt? Yes. Okay, and a slew of yeah. EPs and splits. And, um, Anxiety Kiss, the most recent one, is that, that was your first record to come out on Death Wish? Yeah, that was the first full length to come out on Death Wish. We did a seven inch with them in 2009 or eight, and they reissued our first LP in 2014 or 15. I don't remember. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, they had a, a kind of a package deal when you ordered Anxiety Kiss from them that you could have ordered a first reissue. So I got that. It was in the, it's a nice little package, actually, the first album. Yeah, we tried to make it nice. Yeah. yeah. How was the relationship with Death Wish, man? Is it a good, good label to be on? Yeah, it's great. Um, I've been friends with them for a really long time. Uh, you know, it's owned by Jake from Converge and his friend Trey. And I know Jake and all the Converge guys for a really long time, you know, since well before Coliseum. And Trey as well. Uh, I know them from shows and touring and designed records for them for a long time. And, and prior to Coliseum, various bands I did in the past, they'd kind of wanted to work with some of my various bands and it, it never really worked out for one reason or another. So it's kind of like a, a long relationship, even though this is the first band that was on Death Wish. And what was the, what was the label that Sister Fate came out on actually? Temporary Residence. Okay. Did, did you do two records with those guys? Yeah, we did House with a Curse and Sister Faith. And then we also did the Parasites EP and the God Damage reissue with them. And was there any reason for the move to Death Wish? Was it just seemed like a natural progression for you guys? Yeah, you know, we'd done a lot of records with Temporary Residence, and it just seemed like Death Wish was kind of the place to be. Maybe because, I don't know, e even though we are kind of, or I am kind of a fan of all different kinds of music, and I'm not necessarily like a strictly a hardcore fan by any means of the imagination. Um, I still think Coliseum is tied into that and, and that seems more of our community. And I, I felt felt like Death Wish would be a good place to 
to move because it felt natural. And on Sister Faith, a lot of the bands we toured with or played with that year were Death Wish bands. Like we looked back at the year and we were like, almost every tour we did, we were playing with or touring with Death Wish bands. And we're like, well, this is our community. We're temporary residents. We were really close with the people at the label. But the only band that we were close with was my brother's band, Young Widows. And so there wasn't really a community there. That that was not really what that label was about. They're really just about their direct relationships with the bands. And we wanted something that was a little bit of a bigger community and, and something that had more um, direct, specific relationships with fans. And that's what Death Wish does. I mean, they really kind of build a, a unique identity. Definitely. And, yeah, so that was that was the reason. It, yeah, it's cool when you say it, it, it is almost like a community because when you look at the the list of bands and their on their roster and even stuff they they sell on their on their website, it is like um you can imagine a lot of these bands would be friends and would tour together and stuff. So yeah, and that's absolutely the case. I mean, they put together tours. I mean, right when we signed to Deathwish, they did this Deathwish Fest in Boston and flew us up, and we were hanging out and playing shows, and and it just felt right. I mean, we're even though like Converge isn't Deathwish per se, they're obviously kind of the flagship of Deathwish. And Converge has been a huge part of Coliseum forever. They've taken us on lots of tours and we always stay with them when we're in the area and they're they're all really close friends of mine. And it just felt like the right place to be. Mm. I actually saw uh, Coliseum on the Converge tour. Maybe it was the No Heroes tour in 2008, I think, in, in London. Okay. In the, in the underworld, actually, and uh, it was interesting because I saw I, I met you in Berlin that time. Was that twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen? And I can't remember on the Sister Faith okay. tour, but man, there was a huge contrast in you as an individual from like your stage presence to two thousand and eight to two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Because in two thousand, I was I saw you and I was like, "Whoa, this is one big angry motherfucking dude." <laughs> but then in Berlin, <laughs> you just seemed to be like. Just seemed a lot more. It's you seem more content in your skin. Is that a reflection of the music you're playing now? Um, I think I was more content with the band after after two thousand eight. I mean, uh, or after that period of time, I think uh, I was least content with the band in two thousand seven and eight. Um, that was a hard period for me. I wasn't really happy with what we were doing and with the lineup at the time. And I remember that being the time that I was the least content. And, and I remember feeling really, um, I don't know, you know, just really insecure about what we were doing. I just never felt exactly right. That, that no salvation record was really hard to write and it didn't come very naturally. And it, it, um, and so then, you know, after that, obviously after that, that time period, I mean, we toured so much on that record and we didn't really get along very well, even though I'm really close with, with uh, Chris, the drummer from that time still, I don't think we meshed in terms of what we wanted to do musically. And after that time period, obviously I kind of like rewrote the script for Coliseum. I, it was time for me to like, to get back to what felt right for me. And so, yeah, it was like finding what was right for me as a musician and a person. And, and that took a little bit of time, but I'd say by sister faith, it was like, 
okay, this is this is right. This is what I am. This feels better. And so for the last two records, it was like felt very very correct and very much like Coliseum and um, yeah, yeah. I mean, not that I always necessarily felt comfortable in my skin. I don't I don't know that that uh, I've ever always felt that way. You know, that kind of comes and goes. But um, in terms of on stage and musically, that was absolutely the case. Like once Carter joined the band on drums, that's when we really became, um, I won't say became Coliseum because I, I, I love everything we've done and, and I would never discount anything we've done because I appreciate, like if No Salvation is somebody's favorite Coliseum record, that's, that's beautiful. But to me, Coliseum is most defined by like God Damage and then the last three albums. You know, that, that to me is are the, like the best things we did and the other things are maybe more transitional. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's funny because um, I listen to the, the newer albums and I I probably think they're my favourite Coliseum records like Sister Fate and Anxiety Kiss but I, I, the sound is paired back a lot it's not, it's, it's less intense but it feels it feels heavier for its honesty or something, you know, if, if you know what I mean. Like it's not yeah. like pummeling riffs and like blast beat drums, but just the melody and just the way that the songs just seem so natural and honest that they feel more intense to listen to, you know, which is, which is always cool. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, that's the goal. I mean, yeah. I, I think those, I think those records are, are way more emotionally honest and, and more challenging, um, from a songwriting perspective and from a, from a, performance perspective not technically because i have no interest in, in technical playing and i really i will say that that in like the no salvation era i felt a lot of pressure from, from myself to play Fast. more technically yeah like i think because we were maybe because we signed a relapse and because my friends at the time were like this band lords and maybe my brother's bands and, and even converge like there's a lot a lot of this technicality and I'm not that kind of player. I mean, I don't care. Like I don't like guitar solos, you know, I don't like I don't like any band that's technical. You know, like the only guitar solos I like are like Jim Askis from Dinosaur Jr. You know, like I really hate guitar solos. You, you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah, they're fine. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, they work so and they work. Actually I was listening to a new Tombs track that they just released on SoundCloud and it's um you know there's a solo in there that's like it's not flash and it's not fast and but it just fucking works really really well you know but sometimes yeah. and in some some veins of music there's just like it's just fucking fret masturbation i suppose you know right. so yeah it's it, uh i won't say this across the board but to me there's something about technical playing sometimes that feels kind of macho and I don't like that. Like it feels like showing off and it feels like this. And the way that, that fans are attracted to it sometimes is this kind of, um, yeah, hell yeah. You know, uh, kind of thing. And I'm just like, Ugh, whatever. It, it's kind of like, <laughs> totally. um, I don't know what to compare it to necessarily, but it's the kind, kind of, of like, it's the kind of stuff people listen with their eyes to, you know, cause you know, it's so flash and fast that right. it's like you, it's, you listen with your eyes it's kind of like people that have this obsession with musical equipment and, and, you know, let's look at the biggest amps and all the craziest shit. And, and, 
to me, it gets to a point where it's kind of just like looking at automobiles, like engines. And I'm like, I don't really give a shit about that. Like, I may look at an old car and appreciate the artistry. I may, I might appreciate the appearance, but I don't care how fast it goes. And I don't care how the engine looks. So anyway, to get back to the point, like the, the later Coliseum records are, are, uh, to me more challenging and, and, and definitely heavier, like on an emotional level because they're more exposed and they're kind of harder to release out into the world because they are a little less political in some ways and a lot more personal. Mm. Uh, so I appreciate hearing that. Yeah, man, they're 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 up there. It's two of my favorite albums ever. You know, not to not 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 to mention just Coliseum records, but um, the recording process. I know you mentioned it was on that Mike Hill interview you did on Everything Black a few years ago. You said mm-hmm. for when you recorded Sister Faith that you recorded. You almost recorded each song in its own right, finished it, and then parked it and went on to the next song, you know, so that you kind of could hear a finished product before you went on to the next song. Did you adopt the same principle for recording Anxiety Kiss? No, we were a lot looser with Anxiety's Kiss. Like Sister Faith, I, I think we just had to be really rigid with that one because I'm not sure why. I, I don't know. I, I haven't reflected on that really. Um, yeah, Sister Faith, we came in with the idea that it would we had the sequence done. We had everything really planned out. Um, and I think maybe part of that was because we were going to Jay's studio, we were going to spend a little more time, and we were excited to be at, at this bigger, nicer studio. And we had a lot of guests involved, so there was a lot of logistics of like, okay, we've got to get this track done and then we're going to send the track to to Wada and Atsuo from Boris in Japan and we're going to like you know send this track to Los Angeles for Jason Farrell to play on and all that kind of shit and but um I'm not really sure I'll have to really <laughs> reflect on this actually like I'm not sure why we did that but but versus anxiety's kiss we did it just a lot more traditionally like we we left it more open we had a lot more songs sister faith we didn't have any extra songs we 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 recorded the extra songs beforehand and had already cut them um i think it's confidence actually i think sister faith we were we were less confident i think we we were like i remember sending the demos to jay to the record label and we kind of picked the good songs beforehand and had everything in order because we really wanted to make those songs perfect. And with Anxiety's Kiss, I think we had the confidence of Sister Faith being good and being well received. So we weren't as as like concerned about this inability to accomplish our goals. So we just said, okay, we we wrote 17 songs maybe we recorded a bunch of covers um and in some ways it was kind of less magical than sister faith because sister faith was this like first time at jay's new studio it was this really magic kind of thing but anxiety's kiss was kind of more fun it was looser we didn't bring any outside guests we really wanted jay's input more we kind of let jay be more of a an additional member of the band 
Um, so yeah, we did it in a more traditional manner. I mean, we, um, I think we still, yeah, I don't remember. I don't think we did like full song. We ever did any like full song start to finish like that. We still broke it up a lot so that I wasn't like blowing my voice out by singing for like days straight. But uh, we did a lot of material. I mean, there's some songs that haven't been released from that. There's like a song that we had Jay sing that um, never quite came together. We had three or three cover songs um, from that session. So, what were the covers actually? Well, one was kind of like released online with this comic book that our friend of ours does called called The Humans. And it was a pale head cover, A Man Should Surrender. One was a band called Laughing Hyenas uh, that John Brandon from Negative Approach sang for in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Laughing Hyenas, um, Everything I Want. And the other is Lydia Lunch and Roland S. Howard, um, Burning Skulls. So those were like, I mean, pale head is more kind of just like, kind of fit our vibe a little bit. And the other two were like, two of my favorite songs like Roland S. Howard is, is like my, one of my main guitar influences and is a huge guitar influence on the, on anxiety's kiss. Like the, the song sharp fangs, pale flesh is like my homage to him. He, he was, he was the guitar player in the birthday party and then these immortal souls and then did a bunch of solo records and collaborated with Lydia launch and a lot of other people. So he's, he's like my, one of my main guitar guys. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and how long did it take to record Anxiety's Case, actually? Um, not, I don't remember. It's probably written in the record dates, uh, like probably about two weeks. Okay. You know? That's pretty quick. Two or two and a half weeks. I don't remember. How, how is the, does the, you know, you've had a, a few lineup changes through the years. Does do the lineup changes affect the writing of, of the of of the records, or do you are, are you the main um, writer in the band per se? They have affected it. I mean, I kind of had to like over the years. Everybody has always had input. Um, some people wrote more than less. I think when the band started, I came with a batch of songs, and then we kind of collaborated on songs and. Um, so I'd say the first album is maybe half collaboration, half written by me. And then God Damage is, is like, I think there are maybe two or three songs I wrote entirely and the rest are collaborated. And, um, then I know Salvation, we kind of spent this long time collaborating and then in the end, kind of went back and listened to all the demos and I thought, oh yeah, I actually wrote most of this. And But there was a, so much time on No Salvation where we were sitting in the practice space trying to squeeze water from a stone. And that was part of the big change with House of the Curse where I wrote that whole album on my own. And um. I think that created a little bit of tension for Mike, who is our bass player through from right before God damage until like six months before sister faith was recorded. Um, 
Mike didn't really write much, but I think when we just kind of sat in the practice space, he felt more of a part of the writing. Okay. So I think that was, he felt more part of it versus like me just bringing the song and being like, learn this. Um, so that was kind of the thing over the years where I, I kind of had to f realize that I could, did it, could accept control of the band, if that makes sense. You know, like not an egotistical way, but just like, uh, yeah, it's my band. I, I lead it. I write most of the material, like, like just accept that you do that and, and do that. Mm, it's so, a very personal project then, obviously for yourself. Yeah. But everybody who's in the band is in the band, right? Like, so, um, so sister faith, um, I wrote a good chunk of it, but then Carter, our drummer, he's a really great guitar player. He sings and plays guitar in bands in his hometown. Yeah. He wrote some stuff. Like he wrote the song used blood. He wrote all the music to that. And I kind of like loosely rearranged it. Um, and then Kahan, when he joined the band, he's a really great bass player and songwriter and guitar player. So he started collaborating more. So the last few songs we wrote on Sister Faith, we all wrote together. Like Late Night Trains, they just took, we just took the opening notes. I had written a whole song, and we just took the opening notes and then kind of threw the rest of it out and kind of rewrote the song from there. And certainly some other songs too, I'm kind of forgetting. I should do that thing where you like, I should probably listen to all my records before I, <laughs> yeah. so I remember. Uh, but an anxiety's kiss. I don't know, man. There was maybe just like two or three songs that I wrote all the way through. Like we're the water and the last song. Um, forgetting what it's called, but what, um, those two, I think I wrote, but the rest of them, we all wrote together. Uh, Carter, wrote one of the songs and uh he's a sick Kahan, actually yeah he's amazing Kahan wrote uh the whole song course correction he wrote the bass line to that whole song and i just put the guitar on top and so it became more collaborative because i think once Kahan joined the band that was it like that that was the band yeah um yeah it just so. it just looked right i remember back to that berlin show you know when you look at a band sometimes and you kind of go yeah they're meant to yeah. be in a band, you know, you don't, you don't question any member, you don't go, oh, maybe he, sh he doesn't really suit it, but no, it was just fucking balls out rock and roll and just everyone yeah. seemed to be having fun, you know. I remember, at the I think you were, <laughs> you, you said a few times that Coliseum are not a sludge band. Did you get tagged uh, with the sludge label <laughs> a lot? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I probably spent so much time over the years, more time fighting what, we didn't want to be then, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, than anything else. And you're definitely not fucking know. sludge. I don't even, I'm not even sure what sludge is, but I wouldn't call Coliseum I don't sludge. Know. I mean, in my mind, sludge is always like, I hate God and grief and new thrush and all that kind of shit, like buzz oven. And, uh, but now I think people think it's like torch and Baroness and Kailessa. And I guess, I guess we were thrown in there, but I, we were never like as heavy as any of those bands, but, um, you know, people say we're all sorts of things and I never saw us as a metal band. Uh, so I don't know. I, I never, I never connected with the term of us being metal. Yeah. Yeah. Mainly cause I'm just not a metal guy. And like, it's just not something that, that connects with me at all. And as a, as a, as a tag for my music, 
obviously I like some metal bands a lot, but um, I don't know. But I probably wasted way too much time in my life arguing that. It's just um, sometimes I think you really have to push against it. Otherwise, it will just overtake you. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. The defense with offense. Um, yeah. But it makes sense now that, you know, like I think probably in the last couple of records, you're like, oh, yeah they're definitely not a metal band you know <laughs> you know it's just yeah it makes a lot more sense now maybe your own no salvation Pe people could have argued against you i can see that yeah but yeah, yeah. um yeah. um kn is in an, a band is it called yoshta is that how you yaucha yaucha man i was only yeah. listening to those guys last week fucking really good band they're great yeah did you have any influences from this side of the the world growing up musically yeah i mean uh, I realize that I'm I'm a total Anglophile musically. Like I like obviously growing up, like my dad is an insane Beatles fan. So like I grew up absolutely all about that. And you know, you know, like growing up like into Zeppelin and all that kind of stuff and like Sabbath a little bit, like not as much, but um I mean I was really lucky that I got into punk before hardcore. So, because I grew up in a small town south of Louisville. So, I didn't really get to experience local scenes until I was a little bit older. Okay. Which I think was really good for me. Because um, I think if I experienced like local bands and things going on in the early 90s, before I'd experienced like, really good music <laughs> i think it kind of would fuck me up you, you possibly I, would be in a sludge band no? <laughs> yeah like sometimes i see people that are really obsessed with uh bands of the 90s and 80s um or i guess that that i don't think are that good it's i'm just kind of shocked like i, I was really lucky you know like i ordered i don't know if you guys had this here there but you know we had like this columbia house music thing where you pay like a penny and you just pay shipping and you get like 12 cassettes and you'd pay later or whatever. Okay, nice. And so I just remember getting like Ramones mania, the story of the clash, Iggy and the stooges, sex pistols, all that shit. So I just, I just got like all the basics, like the building blocks first. And then you go to the mall and they had everything on SST and discord and stuff. So you got black flag and big Caroline, you got the misfits uh, you know, Minor Threat and Fugazi. So I grew up on all that stuff first. And uh, that's a good diet for a kid. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I absolutely love and grew up on like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and, and Wire and Gang of Four and like Stiff Little Fingers and, and just like everything and, and uh, Killing Joke. And, and so, like, I just love all that i mean i i could probably subsist on like only music you know from the british isles for like my whole life really i mean it's that's kind of like my jam for sure and i think that's like a huge part of like coliseum's influences like i really love the early blitz street punk stuff and then i i'm obsessed with this the blitz record with it just the guitar player did called second empire justice. This is like this total post-punk killing joke kind of record. It's really amazing. Um, there's a band called the sound, uh, 
from England in the late seventies, early eighties that never quite made it. That's like a huge, huge influence on sister faith and, and anxiety's kiss. But I was like obsessed with it during sister faith. So I think, yeah, like the, the song save everything initially was going to be like a tribute to the singer of the sound who killed himself in the eighties. But the lyrics kind of ended up being a tribute to a friend of mine, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I could probably go on and on and on, but yeah, that's definitely huge. Like all the, all the late seventies, early eighties stuff, um, is massive for me. You've got to fight against the tide, I think, for your, I suppose, your musical integrity. There's a band from Northern Ireland called Therapy, and they had, like, a chance to, you know. Yes, they, yeah. Yeah, they, they released, like, you know, their Baby Teeth and Pleasure Death and, and Nurse were fucking amazing albums. And then um, Trouble Gum came out, and they had a chance to, like, it was, a, they got serious exposure, and then they had a chance, like, to almost be, like, the Irish Nirvana, so to speak. And they just yeah. kind of went, uh, you know what? fuck this you know and they just kind of yeah. fade away and they're still going man and they still have their like cult little following and you know they're happy just doing you know that they, they never really went for global stardom so to speak you know that's cool yeah yeah i had a therapy cassette uh, when, I, when i was in high school yeah the yeah. seven eye on it i can't remember what it's called right now um if it was an early one would it be pleasure death or it was a baby teeth or pleasure death they were like two two um seven track eps that they were released and together as like this thing called Caucasian Psychosis, but it's probably their best work, you know, because it's not recorded all that well and it's kind of fucking shitty sounding, but it's it's better for it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking it up. It's Nurse. A Nurse. Oh, yeah. Nurse is yeah. a cracking album, man. Yeah. Fucking amazing drummer on that album, actually. <laughs> what? <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. What inspires you to write these days, um, Ryan? Is it just anything and everything in life or... Like I know you were saying that you wrote just earlier that you wrote a song about your friend of yours or a tribute to a friend of yours and that maybe you're less political nowadays, so to speak. Um, man, I don't I don't think I'm necessarily less political. Um I have to kind of fight to not be political in my writing. Um I think because that's so easy to be inspired by that. I mean, I, you know, obviously the first three songs on on Anxiety's Kiss are, are pretty political and social and and they got a lot of response you know like surprising amount uh got a lot of questions about that and a lot of references in, in the reviews about the first three songs on anxiety's kiss and it was kind of interesting because i'm like we've always been a band that sang about things you know every record has those references and talks about it but um it was interesting because i i think Bands don't sing about those things a lot and really stay away from them. And so when, when bands do reference it, um, and maybe when they do it in an artful way or an artistic way, it's kind of surprising. So, um, but that's always inspiring and it's always hard to not write about it because it's so everywhere. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm monumental. Yeah. I've been working on some new music on my own and trying to like address everything in a musically and lyrically in a different way. But even then I'm just writing these lyrics for this new song and I'm like, it's not really political, but it's still kind of like nihilistic about people, you know, which is still political in its own way. So 
it's that. And then it's just, um, I don't know, whatever ails me, I guess you kind of get to a dark point or, you know, loss, um, confusion. I mean, that, that's kind of a big theme with Coliseum always is just this kind of, um, quest for answers and, and looking for, for kind of peace of mind. And at the same time as Coliseum has gone on, especially in the last three records, trying to challenge myself as a writer to address things in a different way and not always write from the first person and kind of write some songs that are narratives and write about things that are interesting to me without being so direct. Yeah. And, you know, like on Anxiety's Kiss, there's like Dark Light of Seduction and um, Sharp Fangs, Pale Flesh, and you know, even his back on his uh, far as House with the Curse, is like Blind in One Eye, songs that that absolutely have a point to me and have a perspective to me, but aren't absolutely clear. You know, um, which makes it more personal again, you know, if, if it's a, you know, if the band is a personal project to you, then, you know, if, right. you're, if you're writing in this way, it, it, it's, it is deeply personal, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're thematic and interesting. And a lot of the writers that I respect lyrically do that. And, um, you know, I remember growing up, I mean, Fugazi was my favorite band through high school, my twenties. And they're a band I saw a lot. And to me, they're kind of like the defining band of my life kind of how the Beatles were for my dad, I guess. And I didn't always know what they were singing about. You know, sometimes it was obscured in a way that it was almost confusing. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that there's subtext there and that uh, you don't always know exactly what it's all about. And sometimes you do. Sometimes it's so flat out. It's like, okay, this song is about this. Um, and I like doing that too. Uh, you know, I like that the first three songs on Anxiety's Kiss are specifically about this. It's about empathy. It's about class structure. It's about, you know, cop violence, you know, it, um, but they're still, you know, they're not stupid in the way they're saying that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've never felt, um, that it's difficult to write lyrics, at least, um, I always jot down notes and ideas and words that come into my head. And if I ever feel like I'm having a hard time, you know, just crack a book open and read some lines, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. like, uh, you find know, inspiration. It's everywhere. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, just find a word and you're just like, Oh, wow. That, that word is great. And, and it leads you to another word. I mean, I, you know, I, I find inspiration from, from movies all the time. I'm like a, you know, just a fanatic movie fan and, and film fan. So I, you know, the thing now is that so many like, which great, it's great, but so many like great art films are like reissued and, and everywhere. So you can't just like steal a name for a song from a, from a movie title like you used to be able to. So, cause they're all like released on the Criterion collection now so it's like okay i can't really do that it's hard to be special these days <laughs> right exactly so um but you know all those kind of things like i i don't feel like there's any any 
any lack of things to be inspired by. So uh, that's that's never really been a challenge. Uh, you know, my challenges are. I mean, writing music is always a challenge to do better and to change and to do different things. That's always hard. And um, singing is a fucking challenge. You know, trying to trying to not hate the way you sound and to do different things and to and to move beyond your own limitations is like a fucking pain in the ass. You got to keep pushing so, forward, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I talked to Jay Robbins. I talked to Jay Robbins this week, and he was like, John Lennon hated his own voice, you know? So you're like, okay, you know, I mean, everybody probably does. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are some assholes out there in the world who think they sound really fucking cool. <laughs> but, yeah, man, I know. Uh, Hendrix apparently hated his own voice as well, you know? J yeah. Yeah, you know? So. Uh, yeah, I don't, uh, even listening back, doing these interviews and stuff, and you're, man, the first few, I was listening back to my own voice, going, God almighty, I sound like such a dumbass, but you just got to move on, don't you? You just got to move on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was actually, maybe you don't want, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but I, I'm kind of interested in gear and I know you, you're a, you're a big JCM 800 fan. Do you still use Absolutely. the JCM 800? Of course. Is yeah. that your target amp? Um, yeah. live rig versus recording rig. Is it the exact same? You don't mix it up much. I use a lot of different amps recording. Um, I have too many amps right now. It's kind of, you know, it's like. Kind of silly. It's uh, no such I, thing as too many amps. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, uh, I try to like, I try to slim it down, and then I kind of get different ideas. Like whenever Coliseum has toured a lot, excuse me, I've I always kind of try to do different things to slim it down and make it easier. Um, at one point, I just kind of reached a point where I'm just like, this is so stupid to lug all this stuff around, and because I use a stereo setup you know, setting things on the other side of the stage can be really cumbersome. And, uh, so I just, I started using combos a lot more just to make things simpler, but I've always used an 800. I mean, I don't think I've, I've Coliseum has, I don't think Coliseum has ever played a show without an 800, you know, on stage, but I, I own two 800s. I own a, an 8,700 watt that I got when, when we signed a relapse, we, they signed us for like way too much money. They were doing that at the time. Um, and then they dropped a bunch of bands years later. Um, but we all got like a little bit of extra money to buy some stuff. So I bought the 100 watt 800 then in 2007 or six. And I have an, a 50 watt 800 that's like the first production year, which is what, 80 or 81? And that one, in like 2012, I hadn't used it in a long time. It just sat in its case in my garage. So I traded it to the local shop here for a twin reverb. And because um, I was like, oh, I haven't used it, whatever. You know? And then a guy who's like a Coliseum fan bought in Seattle. Someone told him it was there. And he bought it and they shipped it to him in Seattle. And then he moved to Chicago like a year or two later and I met him and he was like, Hey, I've got your, your amp. He's like a big amp guy. And he's like, I've got your 800. And I was like, well, shit, man, if you ever sell it, sell it just back. sell it back to me. So a couple years later, he sold it back to me. 
So it went like all the way around the country and ended up back to me. And uh, I'm so glad I have it. It sounds great. I've been using it like exclusively. I use it on all the Anxieties Kiss touring and I use it all the time. Now the, now the 100 watt just sits in the case pretty much. So, um, but yeah, I mean, recording, um, I usually bring a couple amps and then Jay just has a lot of different cool amps. There's an amp shop, amp and guitar shop that shares the studio space with Jay Robbins and, um, and they have a lot of amps that they've kind of modded and, and gotten in really good shape. But Jay, he has this really cool Ampeg Saturn, I think is what it is. And it sounds really neat. And there's like Jay's Vox AC 30 that, you know, it's like an original one that he used in Jawbox and it sounds awesome. Um, I have this Yamaha T 50 C, which is a little, uh, 50 watt tube amp combo that was Saldano designed and it's pretty cool. Um, it's like a little too like eighties metal sounding for me. It, okay. It's like, it's a little bit thin, but we used it on some stuff. Uh, like it's the, on that song come down that's on anxiety's kiss. Kahan just played the, uh, baritone guitar on it. Like I don't play on it at all. And, um, it, it's just that amp and it sounds perfect for that. It's just got that great, like eighties kind of sound. Okay. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I've just got, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, you know, there's lots of cabinets and different things and lots of guitars. And, um, I think old amps work best. I love old amps, you know, do you know, they take, yeah, they take pedals really well up front, you know, you don't have to fuck around with effects loops or any of that. You just shove a pedal in and it just fucking soaks it up. You know, I love that. Yeah. I mean, lots of people ask about everything I use and essentially it's like the guitar, uh, clone theory pedal for like the wide chorus, the electro harmonic clone theory chorus gives a wide stereo and then like a boss, uh, DD five delay, which is also like wide stereo chorus. And then a JCM 800 and then whatever other amps I have. Like sometimes it's like, like I got this orange solid state combo that I like that's new that, that they sold me. And I have some like newer fender combos that are pretty cool. And like, as long as I have the eight hundreds, like, yeah, you're set. Yeah. Comes and goes, yeah, you know, yeah, man. there's always going to be that one or two amps that you're like, no, there's no fucking way I'm going to sell that. Yeah, exactly. Do you still play the first act guitar? Is that your main guitar? No, it was retired a few years ago. So. Yeah, it was uh, after Sister Faith tours, I retired it. And uh, I got this, I wanted to start playing hollow body guitars. And so I got this Gibson ES-139 that was like a solid top, like a solid top, but it was hollow body. It was pretty cool, but um, we couldn't get it intonated right. We had a really hard time with it. And so we used it on... Anxiety's Kiss. Anxiety's Kiss, we used like all sorts of different guitars. Like I used my my Jaguar and I used this this um uh Japanese, like 70s or 80s Japanese Les Paul knockoff by Suzuki that I got in Australia. And I might have used the first act on that on the recording. I really don't remember. But there are lots of guitars floating around. Um, at one point, um, I know on a wrong goodbye, I used the Gibson hollow body that we couldn't get 
intonated and I just tuned it so it would like stay because it's just basically these two notes and I just tuned it to those two notes because <laughs> okay. you know, the intonation was so weird. Um, is it in the G string or something? Yeah, exactly. G, yeah, that fucking G string is a tough one. Basically, after all that, I, I uh, this company called Duesenberg that's based in Germany that makes these really nice. I uh, I spoke with them and, and got like a you know I endorsed them and got this beautiful hollow body from them that I played ever since then, and uh, it's amazing. It's like one of the greatest guitars I've ever owned. So yeah, that, probably yeah. work for your sound as well. The hollow body would really work well with the the newer Coliseum sound, you know. Oh yeah, it's a lot perfect. Real like, character or something. Yeah. Yeah, my other. One of my other biggest guitar influences is Jordy from Killing Joke, and he's always played the big, huge hollow body, Gibson hollow body, which uh, I read all about him. Like, he said he has horrible t problems with feedback, because his is just massive. And some people I know have seen him and said that he had really bad problems with feedback, and they play with a lot more gain than I do. But um, this this uh, Duesenberg I got, it's got solid it's solid under the pickups so it's like a solid block pickup and just ho hollow on the side and it's pretty big but it never has any feedback problems at all and and I, I don't play with a lot of gain either over the years i've just tried to dial the gain back farther and farther just kind of a challenge over the years to like you know gain just kind of i think when, kind you, of when you pull mistake. it when you pull it back it just exposes your playing a lot more you know it's like you know, right. if you're playing stuff clean, you're like, you fucking have to be on the money or else, you know, it's going to yeah. sound obvious if you're shit, you know. So but, I tried to challenge myself to be a better player by doing that, you know. Cool. And uh, before I leave the Coliseum stuff, maybe I, I just want to ask you about Short Killer. Um, any European dates planned? And no European dates planned, no. 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 Have you ever played in Ireland, actually? No. We have not. No, there was like one or two opportunities to do so, but like it was always really cost prohibitive. You know, so it just didn't happen. Oh, well, hopefully someday we'll see you on these shores. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. When did you set up? Uh, did you set up Shirt Killer actually, Ryan? Did you? Somebody else did originally, like, um, you know, about 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago, uh, some people we know here in town that do a print screen printing shop set it up. And they were selling like Coliseum stuff and some other some other things, but they they weren't really doing a very good job of it, like shipping things late and, and some things got damaged and stuff like that. And so a friend of mine and I came to them and said, "Hey, why don't we take this over? Because we'll do a great job with this." Because my friend and I had history working at record labels and doing various other things like that, and um, you guys can still print all the shirts but we'll really build this because I know all these bands from touring and, and doing shows and just everything I've done. And, uh, you know, and they'll trust me and I think I can bring bands over. So we made an agreement to do that. And, and pretty much like right off the bat, like 10 years ago, I brought over like Kylesa and Torch and Baroness. And so just kind of built from there. So, um, so my friend was my partner for many years and then he, he left and I became the sole owner like three years ago. And now he, he kind of came back, but he just kind of works as a, a part-time employee. Um, yeah. 
So that's that's the quick story. <laughs> nice yeah. and quick. Was this your first avenue into like the music business outside of music? If you know what I mean? No, I've been in the music I hate to say music business, but yeah, I've been involved in that like for a really long time. Like when I was um I don't know, early twenties, like late nineties, I started working at this record label here in town called Initial Records. And uh they they put out a lot of bands from here and from elsewhere, like Boys It's Fire and Guilt and Ink and Dagger and all this kind of stuff. Uh they were pretty big, like late nineties. Um indie label for a bit. And so I worked there for, I don't know, six, five, six years until the label closed. And we did, we did a big festival here and I booked a lot of the bands and was involved in that. And, and, um, and I booked a lot of shows in Louisville for many, many years. So I knew a lot of bands from that. And over those years I started designing stuff for bands too. So, um, so I also dealt with labels and, you know, other companies, you know, production companies doing shirt designs and record designs. And I even did stuff as a lot of other designers have, like did stuff with these big companies that do shirts for like Metallica and Slayer and shit like that. It kind of dealt with the, I don't even know how to put it, the like real music industry, the like the movers and shakers, the people that talk fast and have no patience and the money spinners. Yeah. So I've kind of, I certainly have not been in all sides of it, but I've been in uh, working outside of it for a long time because I kind of knew I would never make a living making music. I mean, I, you know, I still like, I guess I still kind of dream of it and I still wish the music I made was more popular. Um, but I always kind of looked up to my heroes and I thought, well, they don't, they, most of them aren't really like music stars or whatever, you know, they have yeah. to do other things like, like, you know, most of them own record labels or they're producers or they're designers or they you know, do studios or they do this or that. And so I should probably be doing something else. And I knew I'd never wanted, I, you know, I didn't go to college much, you know, I dropped out a few times and I didn't have any training ever to do anything. I just learned everything I did. And so I, I knew I had to do something and I, and I didn't want to work within the lines. You know, I didn't want to just kind of fall in and, uh, the ninth of fiver. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what I did. I just kind of followed, followed my instincts and, and asked for help and, and forced my way in and, and here we are like 20 some odd years later nice yeah you never got that you never hit a point in in coliseum or whatever that you were like fuck i, I i'm just gonna abandon all of this and just get get the nine to five job and <laughs> no i mean Good. there was a few years ago like where i had to kind of uh swallow my pride coliseum wasn't touring we took a long time off before sister faith to write and, and take it easy and and I needed a little bit of extra money and, um, cause the band always made money, you know, when we're touring and stuff, but, um, and, and money like sometimes trickles in from other sources, you know, strangely, like 
there might be like a song in a video game and you're just like, Oh, what the fuck? You know, like wow. ran rarely, but you know, yeah, yeah. sometimes. And, uh, and uh, a check might come in, but like, um, a few years ago I was like, okay, I got to make a little bit of money. And so I, I worked at a video store that, that a guy I knew owned, uh, the guy, bass player slint. And I wrote him and, and the store since closed, which is really sad, but he, he hired me part-time and I worked there and that was great. And then I also like asked my buddy who, who does valet work and he got me on this valet crew and I did that on weekends for cash for a few months. And that, the valet work was kind of fun, but you just had to work with total random people, you know, mostly just like dudes who were kind of, kind of sexist, racist, kind of douchebag guys. And it was really interesting, you know, and you just kind of got treated like a random asshole by rich people. And, um, I don't know. It was interesting, man. It was good for me, you know, it kind of brought me back to reality. And, and I was like, I do not ever want to do this. <laughs> yeah. but, but you also felt detached from it because you could walk away at any time. I didn't really feel desperate. And, um, and like these guys that would say fucked up shit about a woman walking down the street that I was working with, I was just like, you know, would tell those guys to fuck off or that wasn't cool or whatever. And, and I felt so disconnected from their reality that like, I think they were kind of shocked that I would just say these things to them. They were just like, Oh, okay. Like no one had ever told them it wasn't cool to act like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they'd say shit like, you know, black people don't tip. And I'd be like, fuck you. You know, like don't fucking say that, you know? And they're just like, Whoa, what? You know? And just like, it was really interesting, man. Like, but for me, I had the privilege of, of not having to, to be dependent on that. I just needed the cash right for a little bit. And, um, so it, it was more like a sociological experiment where I could see how these people treated us because we were just jerk offs running around picking up their cars and, and like the dudes that the dude that owned the company is like, Whoa man, rock star working for us. And I'm just like, dude, I'm just a fucking, you know, schlup working like parking cars. If I was a rock star, I would not be here, you know, but I still had the ability to just not do it if I didn't want to. Um, which I eventually didn't do it anymore. So it's kind, um, it's kind of weird, though. You know, you kind of it, it just makes it apparent that you, to have the connection with what you're doing, you know, for it to feed your soul in a sense and and and, and provide you that little bit of that money to survive. You know, I know you say you could just walk away from it, but it's like it's kind of hard to do that all the time. Where you're like, it's almost like you're doing something that you don't really care about. And like, we all do it. I work a job and I'm like, oh, you know, you just have to go through the motions and just right. do it for the paycheck. But it's good to have other stuff going on though, you know, like the music. That's, that's what I'm saying. Most people don't have the ability to do that. And I did. And that's, yeah. Um, and I, and that's why I'm very fortunate. I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like I've worked hard to obviously to do what I do, but, um, yeah, I mean, most people don't have that luck, and, I, and I, I feel for that, you know, and I'm, um, and I don't think it's just because I've worked hard. I think that it's also, like, a lot of people fucking help me out, and I, and there's a lot of circumstance, and I still think, like, a lot of it has to do with, you know, my, 
my like setting in, in society and like, you know, maybe even like where my parents, you know, come from, like my parents aren't rich by any means, but like there's some stability there, you know, shit like that. I think all that kind of, kind of factors in like, I live like a pretty fucking comfortable life on like pretty little amount of money and I get to do what I get to do. So it's pretty good. But you know, of course, like there's never like absolute contentment, you know, like I, I feel really proud of the art that I've made, but you know, Coliseum has always been a struggle, you know, to, to like, it's always been a pretty small band and, and you know, my dream in life is not to like, sell t-shirts online you know yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah i of course feel like i i i don't hate the work by any means i like it it's fun i like i i'm good friends with almost every band that's on the shirt killer roster and i appreciate that they let us handle that business and that they've trusted me with that and in a lot of ways i'm dealing with art every day so that's cool you know sometimes you wonder is there the paths we take meant to be meant to be the way they are, you know. If you know, if, if success came a calling like global success, you know, it's gonna bring its own bullshit, you know. You know. It, oh, it's sure, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like maybe the, the music is probably on more honest and, and better for it, you know. You know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but you know, maybe you could you could make a little dishonest music. For <laughs> <laughs> we should look into that. <laughs> Fucking cut, cut a number one record. Speaking of racists and craziness, what's the spirit of the nation at the moment with the whole presidential campaign, the Donald Trump thing? Is it is it fucking scary over there? I don't know, man. I mean, the we only get little song bites of it over here, and it's like, whoa, fucking some of the stuff is obviously they're going to take some stuff out of context, but even out of context, this song kind of crazy, you know. <laughs> Election years are the worst. I mean, it's they're they're really scary. It seems like an know? election two years, doesn't it? It seems to just kind of. I guess it kind of started last year. It started yeah. so far away, but then it just gets gets worse. I mean, I remember like such fear. I don't know. I don't remember. I guess when when Bob Dole ran against Clinton at some point, maybe the first year I could ever vote. I don't know. I just remember having such fear and. Um. So I don't, I don't really know, man. I mean, yeah, it's terrible out there. I, I just, I think people are shocked by what's happening, but I don't find it shocking. I guess they're shocked because it's a candidate who's saying these hateful things and encouraging this hate and racism and terrible stuff. But I don't find it shocking because I see that in America all the time. And it's not surprising to me, you know, I mean, it's, it's a systemic problem. It's like, it's how, it's what America is built on. Like there's so much of it. And, you know, I mean, people aren't prosecuting cops who kill black kids in the street and, um, you know, or the videos of, of like, border police beating people that are running across the border mercilessly. You know, it's like there are just terrible things going on to the oppressed people in the country. And there are so many people that, that don't care or that encourage it or that live in fear of that. And this is just bringing them out in droves, but yeah, I'm not surprised by that. 
It's I'm not surprised by them because I, I, I feel like I know they're there and, and, you know, yeah, it's 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 sometimes I wonder what's more shocking. Is it the, the stuff that say like the likes of Trump says or the support that he gets from a specific like, group of people? Right. It's like they, it's giving them a voice and almost a kind of in, an inherent reason to be to voice how they feel and to be that person. And it's like so I've seen some videos of the, you know, some of the Trump speeches and seen people thrown out and security guards hassling people who are like who are there to kind of almost like go against Trump but mm-hmm. man it's frightening it's really frightening I yeah. wonder, I, I, is is it possible that he be, could become the president I think there's this idea here that people think he can't like oh it's just impossible but I, I think it's truly possible he can I mean uh, this this information might be wrong. I might have read this incorrectly, but I th- I think I read something that the other day that for the primary in Virginia that the last Republican primary in 2012 there were 200,000 people that came out to vote for the Republican primary in 2012 in Virginia, and that this week there were 800,000 that came out to vote in the Republican primary. So he's bringing out way more people than ever come out to vote for him you know, because the people that normally don't care or that don't give a shit or that don't vote are coming out because they believe in his message. And that's, that's, I don't know. I mean, that's scary. That, that seems to me that he has a chance, but I don't know. I mean, maybe if he, if he really gets the nomination, then, Things will change. People will really get activated. Uh, yeah. I, I don't. I mean, I don't know if he's more dangerous than the the Bush administration. I mean, they were like truly evil, horrible people in the, like the Bush Cheney Rumsfeld group. I mean that that was a fucked up group of people, and they did a lot of fucked up shit. A lot of fucked up shit. A lot of damage and a lot of murder and death and um. Will he do as much as that or more than that? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, nothing surprises me anymore in the world. You know, I mean, uh, I don't know. You know, interacting with people online about this, it's like if people don't see the very real things that are happening about like climate change and about how, you know, I guess the, the British and American like intervention into the Middle East has the result of that is extremist terrorism. Like if you don't see the correlations then, and like, you know, how one thing is directly causing the other, then what the fuck will you ever see? Right? Like, it's like the most blatant ignorance on a kind of a global level, isn't it? When you kind of get this shit isn't working, you know, fucking, but it's just, it just highlights how, how, how much um, money and like corporations have in terms of, control of all of this you know i was talking to a guy recently he um uh, i did an interview with him on this he's a car guy but he said that uh, he's worked in like russia and all these places with refugees and stuff but he said there was like um, a huge arms meeting or a meeting of arms traders in france like late late last year and amnesty or representatives of amnesty international weren't allowed into it you know that they just couldn't get into it to see 
like what the fuck is going on here you know but man there's that there's 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 a war culture there's a war like economy in a sense you know and it's yeah. just it has no connection to humanity it's just it's just got dollar bills swings and it's and it's always right it's kind of sad man isn't it it's very sad yeah let's let's yeah. not focus on it too far yeah. man i'm conscious of the time it's like quarter to five yeah. now on your side i gotta go you gotta uh, split second to go pick up my wife from work i mean i could could finish up more later if you want whatever's up to you cool man if you want to come back on later let, let's do it yeah i'm down um I'll uh, I'll send you a Facebook message uh, when when I get back from dropping her off. Cool. Can we do that? Sweet man. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I'll chat to you in a okay. while. Thanks, Ryan. Cool. Thanks. See you in a bit. Yeah, no problem. Bye -bye. So yeah, you got back from collecting your wife. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Where does she work, man? Uh, at the University of Louisville. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that you you studied for a while in college. What did you What did you study? Well, I, I mean, I'm studying at college, that'd be a that'd be stretching it really. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I I basically just went like two semesters. Um, I I wanted to do graphic design, you know, in college, and they they basically put me into computer business classes because there weren't any graphic design courses back then. So it was like, yeah, they. I mean, it was 1995, and the University of Louisville had no no computer aided design courses at the time so they put me into some kind of like i don't remember it was just some kind of like business class class that involved computers you know and that was the days when like you had email they were you know screens that were black with green text and you would go and like check your email at a kiosk and it'd be like hundreds of students kind of like crowded around this and like you get your chance and you log in really quick and you get some assignment from a teacher. And, um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I could have done some kind of art focus or something like that, but, um, yeah, so there was nothing that I wanted to do. I did have, I did take like a film studies class and like, you know, some literature and stuff like that that I found interesting. And then I took some community college courses after that for a semester, and then that was it. And then I was just like, "What's what's the point?" Yeah. So all the all the design work you do is that is that self taught? Yeah, but I mean, I, I kind of had people that were mentors or helpers or whatever. I mean, I had people that were friends. Like when I, I guess I did some design stuff as a kid like in high school that was kind of self-taught like i had a computer like an old ibm computer and i would make flyers and stuff with that and then my girlfriend in high school her dad had a really old macintosh and i made a zine on it because it did like better you know it did really good uh you know 
text and font printing and it had like a lot of uh like clip art kind of stuff and so i would okay. do that um and then you know i remember making like a t-shirt design and some things like that so i got like a little bit better but when i got hired on at initial records um they had max you know they all had max and scanners and all that kind of stuff and that was right when like the first generation iMacs were coming out when they were just like like looked like monitors with a handle on the back I remember if you remember that. those yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one color or whatever um so they had bought a bunch of those and i kind of got the hand-me-down tower and so i was supposed to be the zine guy like i sent out all the records to the zines and did kind of like not really pr but just basically just did the mail outs and stuff like that and some of the ad placement. But in the meantime, I would also start designing ads and doing my own stuff. And so I learned from the guys that had worked at initial before me or were working there while I worked there. So I just asked them a lot of questions. And then as some of them left, I kind of would take on their positions and I would also learn by taking files that were, completed and kind of looking at them and seeing what was done and kind of like, I don't know, kind of like reverse engineering design work that had already been done. But yeah, I just asked those guys a lot of questions and kind of learned as I went along. And that's still what I do. You know, if I don't know how to do something, I just look it up and read how to do it and, you know, figure it out. You don't fear that kind of learning curve. You just dive straight in. Yeah. It's a good yeah. way to be. It was like this, you know, kind of, you know, learning out there. Actually, Mike Hill was very helpful to me at the start because I remember um, trying to get um, ideas of how to stream or, you know, put your um, media on iTunes and all this bullshit. And I was like, oh, where do I start? You know, you look through YouTube videos. And but I remember sending Mike a message once and he was like, yeah, you just need to do this, that and it. And it's like sometimes just that little helping hand along the way can be really beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's a good guy. So did you like school? Yeah, high school was okay. I mean, like the later years, um, my school was kind of like split up because the the middle school I went to was being turned into a high school. So it was like uh, maybe seventh grade, we got moved to what was the old high school. So we were there for like, eighth and ninth grade and then we went back to the school we went to middle school in which had been kind of redone as the bigger high school so when i was in like 10th 11th and 12th grade yeah yeah i mean i liked it okay i didn't care about it i mean um i didn't care about classes i mean i you know i did fine in things that i cared about like you know English, which is like literature, you know, and, um, the arts basically. Yeah. And like, you know, humanities class, which is another arts kind of class. And I think I probably did fine social studies and, and things like that. Like I had a public speaking class, but you know, I didn't do well in like math and, 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 uh, chemistry and, you know, things like that. Those weren't like really my strong suits, the sciences and, and things like that. Um, but 
I just didn't care. I don't remember doing any homework. I don't remember studying. I don't remember doing any work. Like my wife and I talk about this, she excelled at school and went to college and all that. And, and I, I don't remember doing anything. Okay. I, you know, to me, high school, I just remember hanging out with my friends. I remember making music. I remember putting on shows. I remember causing trouble after school. I remember, you know, skipping class a little bit. I, I just remember doing whatever we wanted to do. And I don't remember putting any work into school. I just kind of remember coasting by, like if it was, you know, if it was e easy enough, I got good grades. If it wasn't, I didn't get bad grades. I just got like, you know, C's or whatever. I got kind of middle grades and that was that. So yeah, I can't say that I hated it, but I think I still had a lot of um, good memories. I think I have good memories from high school, but I think I still have a lot of, um, I don't know. I'm not, I, don't, I wouldn't say like anger or, uh, I don't know what the word is, but I think there's still things you kind of learn in school that I learned younger in school that kind of stick with you, you know, about how people treat each other and about, about cliques and like about society and society. Yeah. And yeah. like, and um and things like that to kind of stick with you and that i'll always remember and that you know to this day like just like you know rednecks and stuff like that like you kind of that's kind of ingrained in you at a young age like you know i have a distaste for sports and and for that kind of attitude and, and all that and that's kind of taught in school or you know or, or, or learned in school by kind of kids and adults and how it's all dealt with and um, so that kind of stuck with me, you know, not like I think about it, but you're just, that's ingrained in you early on. It's almost like the secondary, um, knowledge you pick up, you know, like the primary knowledge would be like the stuff you're taught in class, but then it's like <coughs> learning how to mix with people and the culture of yeah, school and sure. blah, blah, blah. Some of these lessons can live with you a lot longer than like fucking electrons or whatever, you know, in yeah, chemistry. Yeah, and they're, and they're, they're pretty there, accurate, you know. Was there a good, um community of like punk and hardcore kids in your school uh just just that we built really i mean there were like a couple of older kids i remember that were like kind of alternative kids you know that um i didn't really know that well but one of my really good friends knew pretty well i remember them like giving us rides home sometimes and you know they like would listen to the cure and the smiths and stuff and um but you know, that was a time when, like, alternative culture was kind of, like, right on the mainstream, right? Like, like pre-Nirvana, the cure and stuff like that was so big, you know? So all that stuff was part of our lives, like alternative music. And you could buy those shirts at the mall. And, um, you know, even though, like, I don't, nobody I knew listened to it, it was like, except our group of friends, it wasn't as like obscure as certain things are now, you know? And so we were all into that before we got into hardcore. And then, so then we were kind of into hardcore and punk and then all that kind of alternative stuff. And then when like Nirvana broke and whenever that was like 92, then like kids that never listened to what we listened to or gave us the time of day kind of, started getting into the things we were into 
And that was like really odd and I didn't like it. And so while I kind of, I had like the Nirvana record and stuff like that at the time, I kind of rejected all that because it just felt like people that didn't understand your culture were kind of coming in and kind of take a part of it. And, and so I never, I kind of always hated what Nirvana stood for because it, not what they stood for, but like what it represented because it was like the jocks and the normal, normal people suddenly were like kind of trying to be a part of, of what you were about, but in the most superficial way. So, so yeah, I mean, we had a, a small group of people like, you know, skaters and, and stuff like that. But like, as far as I was aware, like we pretty much established it. Like, you know, we started a band and as far as I know, there were no other hardcore bands in my town and we put on shows in my basement, my parents' basement and like would, would rent out VFW halls and like, you know, rent out these little, like, I don't know what you call them, like gazebos or something at the park and do shows there. And then we bring bands from out of town, from Louisville and from wherever else to come down and play. And sometimes, you know, and sometimes it kind of turn into touring bands would come in and, um, so we kind of built our thing there and, you know, put out our own demo tapes and zines and shit like that. So, um, and I think that taught me a lot too. It's quite an exciting time though for, you know, if you're doing all that stuff at a young age and meeting other bands and playing with other bands, it must've been a good, it must've been a, very exciting for you at the time. It was, it was cool. I mean, it was like, it, it taught me a lot. I mean, I think it, it it sticks with me. It's like, I don't wait for anybody else to do anything for me. I just do it myself. Like I, I don't, I don't think anyone is going to hand me anything. Uh, you know, I, I think that I learned that back then. It's like, you make your own, you make your own destiny. You just build it and you create it and you do it. And that's that. Like, you know, I've been really lucky to have a lot of great people work with me and labels and bands and stuff like that, like help out the music I've done and, in a major way, but like, I think they've all done that because they respected the music I made and saw that I worked my ass off. And most of them I knew from me putting on shows for them in Louisville or whatever. They knew me because I've done good things for them or with them, you know, previously. Um, and I learned that back then. I just, cause I came from a small town. I didn't know that there were big scenes. I didn't know what you were supposed to dress like or how you're supposed to act or anything like that. I just learned what I learned from bands I liked and from certain things I experienced and just, we just did it ourselves and, and, and made our own thing, you know? So like, uh, where do you think so that trade came from? Did you think it was, maybe it came from your family growing up? Was it kind of, was that what you learned from your folks maybe, or was it just something that you kind of adapted kind of organically? yourself that kind uh, of do it yourself attitude you know i think it came from like from learning about i think doing a band just kind of came naturally I, I guess like you just are like i want to be in a band i mean i think before we discovered punk we like there's this funny story that like some kids i knew and i wanted to be in a band we wanted to cover aerosmith and so we went out and bought the sheet music to an Aerosmith song. We didn't have the instruments. 
and none of us knew how to read music, but we bought the sheet music because we thought that was the first thing you do. So, it. yeah, so like that was like the exact opposite way of doing it, you know. So, so then once like like I didn't have an instrument, but like my my friend got a bass. So the first recordings we ever did was just him playing bass and me like kind of talking on top of it. Okay. And I listened to uh, this Minutemen record called Politics of Time recently, and and I heard it, and I just kind of had this like shudder through my whole body because i was like oh my god this is exactly what we did as a kid like we obviously were listening to this and we're like yeah this is there are songs that are just like mike watt playing bass and d boone talking and we just did that exact same thing obviously what we did was terrible but like <laughs> so we just learned it from punk you know we just heard these songs and we're like yeah we can do this and then you know at the time in the 90s there were all these things like uh I think it was Simple Machines Records, like a small label from D.C. put out a, a little booklet, a little zine that was like about DIY and about how to put out your own records. And it had all these addresses and phone numbers and like, here's who will print your covers. Here's who will master your records. Here's who will print tapes. Here's who do, do records. And, and so you, there were these people just helping promote that idea. And, and so you could write off and they would kind of guide you through it and um so it was just kind of encouraged everywhere i mean you know you you heard i mean there i don't know there weren't really the books there are now but you just saw that like discord was a small label and that they did their own stuff and so you just like okay we'll do that too um, and then once i kind of discovered the bigger scene in louisville um and like I brought some of those bands down and like kids from Louisville would come down and see those bands. Like they didn't give a shit about watching my band. You know, they would watch the Louisville bands and leave. And most of the Louisville people like didn't give a fuck. But the the bigger, some of the bigger icons of the Louisville scene back then were really nice and encouraging and helpful. And so it was kind of a mixture of like feeling really like in awe that like, whoa, this guy, you know, wrote me back. And this guy is, is, you know, said our demo's good, even though it was obviously terrible, you know, in hindsight, but like, so you got a mixture of encouragement and also like kind of a really hard slap of discouragement from the reality of people that don't give a shit. So, which, yeah, which was hard at the time, but also was kind of like, okay, well, we just keep doing our own thing and we work hard and, like, they don't care and so whatever, you know, and that's kind of true to this day. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> you know, you play a show and, like, people don't give a fuck about you and they're just there to see the headliner and, but, you know, a certain number buy your shirts and they love you and and at the end of the day, I'm like, well, you know, this person loves what we do and this person does and I'm friends with this person that I looked up to my whole life. And, and that's, that's awesome. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, that's so yeah, a lot of what I learned back then kind of stuck through me. When people go to your shows, you know, the, is, is there, um, a bunch of like diehard Coliseum fans that love everything you give them in terms of what you play on a set? Or is there any people that come and go like, Oh fuck, you didn't play this off of no salvation or you didn't do this. Or, do you ever get that? I don't think so anymore. I think that people that only wanted to hear that stuff got, you know, left a long time ago. 
I mean, every once in a while, you know, there might be somebody like, oh, are you going to play this or play that? And I'm just like, no, you know, we're going to play whatever we want to play, you know. <laughs> but generally, we've played stuff from all the eras. I mean, we, even as recently, like, as the end of the Sister Faith tour, we were playing songs from from everything. You know, we did, like, a, a kind of short 10th anniversary tour where we played two or three songs from every record. And um, so we always kind of tried to have some of everything, but usually when a new record comes out, you kind of focus on that, of course. So um, we've never abandoned anything. Yeah. Sometimes you might want to go back and do that because you might not have done it in ages or whatever, but exactly. I remember Love Under Will at, uh, in Berlin. When you played that, yeah. <laughs> my buddy was standing in front of me and man, I was, to do rock so hard. I was like, <laughs> his head almost came off. But nice. man, I think that setting, that Berlin show, because we got there and it was like, fuck, what is this? You know, it was like a plywood stage. And I was like, is this going to be terrible? But man, it turned out to be such an amazing show. How was that tour for you overall? Was it a good tour? It was an odd one, man. It was like pretty short it was the only time we'd ever come over and just kind of done like intentionally did a festival tour because we're kind of too small of a band over there to do that because i mean i think well it's kind of the same here we, we don't really get offered a lot of festivals here either but i think in europe everything's really kind of niche so like we're not really a metal band you know we're not really a hardcore band people in Europe don't see us as an indie rock band, so they don't really put us on these festivals. So we tried like, all right, let's go and do these fests. And so it was kind of odd. Like we did, we did some fest in Belgium that was like almost entirely hardcore bands, like, like moshy kind of hardcore bands. And we, we played like the main big outdoor stage, you know, and like nobody cared, you know, it was like, <laughs> you know, I don't remember like, you know, I would say four to 600 people for the band before us and after us. And for us, it's like a hundred people, like just, you know, but you know, that hundred people cared, you know, they, they were there and, but then there were some good shows. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Berlin show was great. We played uh, this festival in Czech Republic called fluff fest. That was really great. And um, there were some odd things like uh, we lost all our merch money oh, one day in Germany. Luckily we paid our t-shirt bill the day before. So we just paid like 15 or 800 euro, 1800 euro the day before. But like, you know, we lost, I mean, nothing insane, but you know, something like seven or 800 euro somehow like our merch guy lost it. And so he felt terrible and that made a bunch of tension for, you know, for a while. And, um, and then Whips Chains did, I don't know if you, you probably saw us play at yeah. that thing. And like, you know, we played without our drummer with that, like, you know, just his drum tracks. And that was just kind of odd. Like that could have worked in like a, a small club, club or basement yeah, setting. Yeah. Like the Berlin thing was just horrible <laughs> to like do it out in the daylight yeah i can remember just, kind of looking at you and i thought i did sense that maybe you were slightly uncomfortable you know uh, it only uh, became apparent afterwards when i saw you playing with coliseum i was like oh now he's really enjoying himself you know 
oh man, that was horrible. Like just to do that out in that dirt, like <laughs> dirt. It was just, <laughs> we were both just like, this is awful. So, <laughs> you know, that okay. was just kind of awkward. And, but I mean, a lot of it was fun. It was great to yeah. be there with Xerxes, who are our really good friends, and Birds in Row were wonderful. And there was a band um, from Boston, I think, that opened the show. I can't remember their name though. Um, were they a Boston hardcore band? Maybe so. There was a band that played a few shows. I don't really remember who they were. That got that were maybe part um, that maybe Xerxes knew a little better. Kind of yeah. maybe like a, a little harder hardcore kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. But, and that Berlin show was great. And I'm like kind of notorious for like almost, I mean, sometimes seriously, but but almost more in jest, just kind of uh, acting like things are just really terrible or really annoying. Like we got there and, you know, and I'm just like, what the fuck? We're a dirt hit. You know, just kind of like going on and on to everybody and, and you know, like, everybody's laughing and, and just like, Oh man, Ryan's losing his shit. But, <laughs> but at the same time, we're just like, what the fuck is this? Like, there's not a clean bathroom. Like, you know, we got to change into our show clothes before the show. And like, we're just going to be filthy. And, but then the show turned out so great. I mean, it was just so much fun. And that was definitely my highlight of that trip. When it got dark, it made sense. I think, you know, I think yeah. that, when it was like really bright, it like kind of was a bit, yeah, it looked a bit weird, yeah. but I think once it went dark and they had the lights were strewn all over the yard, and uh, it, it was pretty cool, I must say. Yeah, yeah. it was really cool. But I can end. imagine showing up there, coming all the way from fucking the States, going, we're playing in a plywood fucking shed at the back of a bar, what the fuck, you know? Yeah, we thought our van was broken down that day. We'd had some, like, van problems on the way in, so they had to, like, we had to take all our bags out of the van, and, and like, our driver had to take the van somewhere, so we were just, like fuck are we gonna be stuck here you know like with all our shit for a while so but yeah it was great man so i mean i i love europe you know i just i just i love touring there i think that's even when there are tense and weird moments i think i feel the most relaxed touring europe i just it just feels like an adventure all the time and it's always interesting and and, and really fun yeah i suppose there's just so many different types of cultures and stuff not very far away from each other so yeah it's just it's just different every day and um i don't yeah just walking around and seeing things and i, I don't know it's just it's just i just feel very fortunate every time we get to do it so what's next for uh coliseum right have you got tours booked or you got are you writing for a new record there are no plans for coliseum right now so um we are we are taking an indefinite amount of time off so so i don't know what the next plan will be um we just kind of felt like we had we just felt like it was time to to take a break so so i'm not sure really um do you think it, it, it will revive itself again at some stage or could could this be it this could be it, um, but everybody's uh, everybody's happy and with each other, you know, and with the music we make and all that. So um, it's not a door closed by any means, but it's like 
it's um, it's just a it's the time for the band to to like yeah to just go on a hiatus that we've never gone on you know like twelve years of nonstop work. Um, yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, it just kind of wore on me. You know, like I've never had a break in all those twelve years of not thinking about it, I, and I don't have the ability to step away from it in my head uh, because it's it's truly like a, a mission for me, like just like an obsession, and um, and so I think I had to. I mean, it was very much a joint decision, but I think I had this to get to the place where I could like, just be like clear my head and not have anything on my agenda. I mean, I haven't had a point in time in 12 years where there wasn't a tour planned, you know? So, um, so yeah, I don't know, man. I think, I think that's just kind of what it needs to be. I mean, I think it's like if somebody called us tomorrow and said, do you want to go on tour with killing joke? We'd be like, yes. Yeah. You know? Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like, none of those offers have really come our way in a long time. And we've worked so hard. And while the, the uh, response to Anxiety's Kiss from people who love the band was really great, uh, we went out and did a lot of work for it last year in the States. And um, it just didn't really go very well, you know, which has kind of been the case with us forever i mean you know a great show like that berlin show is more like a random coincidence versus a common occurrence um so uh it's it's very frustrating it's a constant uphill battle and so i don't know so and it's not something that we're gonna announce publicly you know like if someone my my, my feelings on it are like I tell people one-on-one -on -one, and if someone listens to this and hears that, you know, that's fine. But like, we didn't feel like we were going to post on our Facebook, like yeah, big statement. You know. Yeah. I guess, I don't know. It's like, if I think about bands I love from years ago, I'm like, did fucking, I don't know. Like did rights of Springs, fucking send out a newsletter to everybody who ever listened to them yeah. and say <laughs> a radio ad we're taking a break or whatever it's just like you know i don't i don't think everything has to be posted every moment and so which is kind of Coliseum. refreshing in today's culture yeah so coliseum is is just stepping away for whatever amount of time it may be so um so in the meantime I'm working on music on my own and the other guys are doing lots of stuff. You know, Kayon's always busy with Yaucha. Uh, Carter does a band called the urn. I'm sorry. No, that he sings and plays guitar for. And, uh, they just started another band called heavy user. It's kind of like a D beat band in Birmingham. So they play all the time. They both live in Birmingham, Alabama, and they, they play together constantly, but can, you know, Yaucha is really busy. And I do a lot of bands here in town. They're part-time. They're kind of like when everybody can do them because most of the people, the bands have like serious jobs or kids or whatever. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, Is that like Black God and Black Cross or 
have those. Yes, yeah, so Black God is kind of like the the long continuation of, of Black Cross, and you know, we used to be called Black Widows originally. So, yeah, so Black God has a new record. We've been our fourth seven inch we've been working on slowly for forever, for like a year, and um, it's kind of almost done. And still on the same vein, two minute tracks. Yes, yeah, and so, um, so there's just vocals. One more track with vocals to be recorded, and then we'll mix it. And I recorded it, so I'm pretty stoked on that. And um, and then I'm you know, Whips Chains has got uh, a bunch of stuff recorded and a bunch of stuff written. So we're trying to just get this stuff done, um, and so. You know, sometimes these other things I, I get frustrated because nothing much happens with them. But then that's just kind of the nature of things like that, you know. So um, I have to realize that, that I kind of have my life set up to play music. And if Coliseum is not active, then I can't really get angry at other people because now I want to be more active with other bands. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, yeah. So... Um, and then I do a band called Six Bells that I just play guitar in, and we put out a CD last year on a label called Translation Loss, and it's a little more of like a rock band kind of thing, like Neil Young, Dinosaur Jr., kind of stuff like that. Cool. So yeah. it's, it's not like you're going to be sitting around on your ass. You're still going to be really busy musically. So. Yeah, I mean, all those are doing stuff, and, and I'm, I'm working on like some new music on my own, like a lot like every day so okay um so i'm definitely doing stuff okay cool um ryan oh, i've talked to you for quite a long time maybe you want to go and spend time with your wife hang out and chill That's for the fun. evening sure. man it's been a it's been a, a privilege to get to talk to you it's um like sometimes you send messages out to people and you're like it's, it's even nice to get a reply but um, i mean you were really good to come on and have a chat with me and and I'm a huge Coliseum fan. It's, it is a bit sad to hear that you're on a hiatus, but it's understandable as well. But I hope everything goes well for you in the future with Shortkiller and all the other projects. And hopefully maybe Coliseum will resurrect itself at some stage and maybe play some shows here in Ireland or the UK or somewhere close by. But um, yeah, man, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks well, thank for you so on. much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, so... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll bounce you out a message when this is edited and if you want to share it you can or it'll be on iTunes anyway but um, yeah man have a great rest of Thursday hopefully okay. catch you soon thanks a lot man take care take care man bye 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 bye, bye, -bye. I know how